Escape Pod 23 October 13th, 2005 Today's story, The Dream Factory, by Jen Reese. Hi, I'm Steve Healy, and welcome again to Escape Pod, taking the best in short fiction and making sounds out of the funny shapes. I'd started to talk last week about science fiction and fantasy, and I made the quasi-contentious statement that the real differences between SF and fantasy aren't that significant compared to how people perceive them. This week, I'll attempt to explain what I meant. First, definitions. SF and fantasy are both considered speculative fiction, meaning that they happen in a world that isn't the one we're living in. The difference, by and large, is that science fiction is supposed to represent worlds that could happen, that are at least somewhat possible given our current understanding of science. And fantasy is supposed to represent worlds that are impossible. There are some technicalities here, and this doesn't even touch the whole genre of alternate history, but that's the gist. My problem with the gist is that when you look at the actual literature that's come out under each label, these distinctions are frequently crap. Yes, there is hard science fiction that prides itself on hitting that shifting target known as possible. But much of what we call science fiction bases itself on wholly invented science that has no basis in real science, or directly contradicts science. Anything involving faster-than-light travel, or time travel, or telepaths, or macroscopic alternate dimensions. Sure, science could change next week, but based on what we know right now, any of that stuff in literature might as well be called magic. Now that's not a complaint. I've railed before about people who want to keep SF, quote, mundane and unambitious. But it muddies the lines. That's my point here. On the fantasy side, well, most fantasy has magic in it. Magic being anything supernatural or basically unexplainable by science. But there are examples of fiction we call fantasy that don't have magic. Gormenghast comes to mind. It doesn't seem to take place in our world, but it could happen. Another example is The Princess Bride. If you take out the fire swamps, and assume a few other details are just exaggerated, there's nothing in it that's magical. But I don't think you'll find anybody anywhere who'd call it historical fiction instead of fantasy. So I don't think the important difference, the one in our heads, comes down to possible versus impossible. We're all about the imagination, and if it's a good story, we don't care. So what then is the subjective difference between SF and fantasy? Some of it's the arrow of time. If it's a world that seems to be in our past, we're more inclined to call it fantasy than SF. If it's a world that seems futuristic to us, we're more inclined to call it science fiction. And some of it's just our gut instinct. I'll wrap this up with a quote from Deborah Doyle, who was one of my instructors at the Viable Paradise writing workshop several years back. She said, If it has horses and swords in it, it's a fantasy. Unless it also has a rocket ship in it, in which case it becomes science fiction. The only thing that'll turn a story with a rocket ship in it back into fantasy is the Holy Grail. And on to today's story. We present The Dream Factory by Jen Rhys, and it's science fiction set in a very unbelievable real place. Miss Rhys has been published in several notable anthologies, including Polyphony, Sword and Sorceress, and Flytrap. She's also written books on American slang for people learning English. She lives in Los Angeles, if the story doesn't make that obvious, where she edits, programs, and practices martial arts. This story first appeared in Strange Horizons in 2003. 
It's read for us by Scott Fletcher of the Podcheck Review, one of the most entertaining ways to keep up with the podcasting world each week. You can hear more from Scott at podcheck.com. So, have your people call someone else's people, and while they're doing lunch, it's story time. The Dream Factory by Jen Reese. You wake up at the crack of ten and check the bed to see who else might be in it. A black-haired head rests on the cream pillow beside yours, surrounded by smears of lipstick and mascara. You remember buying drinks for the office's new PA yesterday. You look down at her face, hoping she's of legal age to do the sorts of things you two did last night, and hoping the sex was worth the cleaning bill on your $500 sheets. You take a quick shower, letting the water pound against your back and the steam open your sinuses. The Santa Anas have been blowing. Every last drop of moisture has been sucked from your body overnight, leaving you with a bristling headache and the taste of sand in your mouth. Not a day goes by that you don't remind yourself that you did this on purpose. You left the world of deep blue skies, soft winter snows, and running water to live in a desert racked with earthquakes and cauterizing winds. You dry off with an expensive, burnt cinnamon towel of Egyptian cotton. Five years ago, you would have called the towel red, or maybe dark red. Now, you call it burnt cinnamon, and fuss if you can only find something in rust. Everything in your closet is expensive. Today is a montage of Abercrombie and Banana Republic. A casual look that costs you more than the suits you used to wear to the bank back in D.C., by the time you're done getting ready, the bed is empty and the PA is gone. She probably realized what time it was, or scrambled outside to throw up last night's sushi, or both. You grab a protein bar and head out the door. You desperately want to stop at the Starbucks for a half-calf, no-fat, no-whip mocha and a muffin, but you're off carbs until at least Saturday. The boss hasn't asked you to wear a tight t-shirt in a while, and you think it might be the slight gut growing around your waist. It's almost 11 now, and the office is 5 miles away. At this hour, you should make it in less than 30 minutes. Not a chance. The 101 is backed up from the on-ramp, and you're stuck blasting KROQ and readjusting your hair for a cool 45 minutes under the monotone glare of the pollution-faded sun. You get into work just before noon and order lunch. Meatball sub, hold the bread and a protein drink. You should have hit the gym before coming in this morning. The boss isn't even here yet. Emilio struts by wearing a tight white shirt and a shit-eating grin. His pecs practically stand up and salute as he goes by. To make it worse, Emilio is actually gay. The boss isn't usually picky about his eye candy, but you see it as a definite disadvantage come raise time. A few hours of checking email, chatting with friends online, and flirting with another PA, and it's time for the big meeting. The Astlakians have ported in from whatever the hell planet they're from, and you need to be in full song and dance mode. You grab your $800 shades and head for the boss's office. Astlakians, at least the women, glow brighter than the sun up close. Two production assistants went blind before you figured out the shade thing. Eh, well... Can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. 
You need some younger-ass lackeyans for a new fantasy feature the company's doing. It's Lord of the Rings meets Kindergarten Cop. Vin Diesel to star, Woo to direct. So you need a bunch of realistic fantasy creatures, and Stan Winston figured out a long time ago that it was easier to hire off-world than build these bizarre creatures from scratch. It's a big industry secret, and you need to keep it that way. You have a tendency to brag and name drop when you're drunk, so you're only mostly sure that you haven't told anyone. The Aslakians are already waiting in the office when you arrive. They never have been able to get the conversion rate from L.A. time to theirs, and vice versa. The boss is probably still smoking a joint in the bathroom, so you shove your sunglasses farther up your nose and offer the Aslakian bigwig some gummy bears and sunflower oil, their favorites. One pulls a huge fang from her mouth and skewers a whole heap of defenseless gummy creatures from the bowl. Cheers, she says, and downs the lot. Mazel tov, says the other, and downs a shot of oil. The boss arrives soon after and grabs two handfuls of malted milk balls, his favorite, before easing into his $3,000 high-back full leopard print office chair. You start the meeting. The meeting consists of one hour of small talk and ten minutes of hard dealing about the contracts. Your boss shows you how it's done by hitting on both the male and female Aslakians in turn. Somehow, the old bastards managed to learn the names of their muscle groups and has finessed the means of best complimenting them. It's a beautiful thing to watch. You try to remember what meetings at the bank were like back on the East Coast. You remember dark blue and gray suits, an array of briefcases, a ten-page agenda. These memories have a dreamlike quality for you. With each month that passes, you become less and less certain that these meetings ever actually happened. Or even could happen. Who has a meeting without all-you-can-eat snacks, comfy chairs and hip collars, and penis jokes? The Aslakians want out of their contract due to some personal troubles on their home planet. But in the end, you convince them to honor it. Of course, they also think your company controls the entire world's gummy food trade, which certainly doesn't hurt your bargaining chips. There's also the matter of the movies and television shows themselves. The Aslakians have only a rudimentary understanding of Earth's culture. They assume that everything Earth broadcasts is of religious significance to you and your fellow Earthlings. Important sermons and parables that help bring understanding and salvation to your unwashed masses. Actually, you sort of agree with them. You get along much better with your brother after seeing that very special episode of Everybody Loves Raymond last year. The meeting has gone well. You're happy, the boss is happy, and the Aslakians have turned slightly pink around their 16 eyes, a sure sign of happiness, or indigestion, or sexual frustration, or something else entirely. You offer to take the one with the removable fang out for drinks. She declines, which is probably for the best since not a lot of bars offer sunflower oil. At least, not yet. If the Aslakians ever go public, you're betting oil cafes will spring up faster than new Starbucks. Well, maybe not that fast. The meeting is just about to break up when the door slams open, and there, in the hallway, is the PA you slept with last night. Or at least you're pretty sure it's her. Oh, and she has some gun in her hand that looks like a prop reject from Galactic Girls Gone Wild, one of your favorite indie films of last year. Aha! The PA says. Briefly, you think she should fire her writer. 
An entrance like that really demands a better opening line. Or maybe even a witty pun, a la the early Schwarzenegger films. Your mind is a flurry of motion, trying to come up with a perfect quip. Alan Alda, says one of the Aslakians. You're pretty sure he was trying to swear, given the sudden purplish cast to his tentacles. Courtney Cox, says the other one. Yes, you should be afraid, says the PA. She brandishes her gun or, or laser or whatever at the Aslakians, then turns to you, probably to let you go. Sex is a way of making women weak. What an idiot, she says to you. I started working here yesterday, and I thought it would take me months to gain someone's confidence. But no, it only took two cosmopolitans and an apple martini before you spilled every detail of my enemy's presence, even before I asked. But you stuck around for the sex anyway, you say flattered. Nice. We didn't have sex, the PA says. You read me your unfinished screenplay and passed out on the bed. Your eye twitches. But you wisely keep your mouth closed, for a change. You're fired, the boss says to you. You shrug. He fires almost everyone every week. If he still remembers that you're fired tomorrow, then you'll start to worry. The PA points the gun back at the Aslakians. Finally, after 23 decons, I can finish my mission. Mission, you say. She'll kill us, the female Aslakian says. Our people are at war with her kind. The shapeshifters. We are close to extinction. Howie Mandel, says the other one. You look at the boss. The boss looks at you. Shapeshifters? You mouth to him. His eyes glint beneath his Ray-Bans. Janet, you say. It was Janet, right? The PA frowns. It's Elon Drindral, but I told you it was Melissa. Right, Melissa, you say. Malted milk ball, the boss says, offering her the bowl. She looks confused. The Aslakians just sit there and jitter, which is fine. They just need to stay out of the way and let you and the boss go to work. No one in any part of the universe can resist the charm of a Hollywood producer. You have talent, the boss says. Loads of it, you add. You can be big, really big in this town. The gun, phaser, electric toothbrush droops in the PA's, Melissa's, hands. Big? Humongous, you say. Julia Roberts big. Big as JLo's ass, the boss croons as he holds out the bowl of malted milk balls even further. But I do not know how to act, Melissa says. Sure you do, you say. Fooled me, didn't you? We'll have you in a three-picture deal by the end of the day. Full right of refusal on all scripts. Top billing. You'll play opposite Clooney, Ford, Pitt, or even Depp if you like the bizarre little bastard. You'll be the belle of the ball. The toast of the town. Pimply-faced boys will masturbate watching your movies. Couples will conceive children. The face of the earth will be forever changed. And that, finally brings a smile to your little Melissa's face. She drops her phaser laser flashlight thing to her side, and she reaches out for a malted milk ball. Under his breath, the boss whispers, Fire the Wookiee lookalike for tomorrow's shoot. We got us an army of talent right here. Eat your heart out, Gollum, you say, grinning, knowing full well that you will not only retain your job, 
but that Emilio's pecs will be doing their perky little salute in front of your new corner office by the end of the week. A shapeshifter. There's nothing you can't do now. Ah, Hollywood. God, do you love this town. And that was our story. As the late Walter Winchell once said, Hollywood is where they shoot too many pictures and not enough actors. Quick administrative update. We got a lot of responses to our recent request for feedback. It was too many responses for us to respond to them all right away, but rest assured that we did get them, and we're carefully sorting through everything you've told us. I'm still waiting to get the stuff from the Mirror Mask guy. We'll be announcing the winners on our website pretty soon. One of the things we learned is that most of you who responded heard of us from somebody else's podcast, usually Geek Foo or The Dragon Page. This fact said a lot to me. It said that Escape Pod owes a great debt to other podcasts. And the best way to pay a debt like that is to pay it forward. So now, as a general rule, any week we don't have a book review, we'll try to play a promo from a podcast we think you might like. Something like this one. Since the earliest times, people have gathered together to tell stories, to share their love for the great characters of old, to hold up the dark mirror of myth in order to see themselves in the light of truth and beauty. Here at the Bears Grow Podcast, the law is that stories have life, and that our lives are made greater by their inclusion. Here we support storytelling and all its practices, but most specifically, the form of role-playing. Each week, we've explored the complicated landscape of dreams and wonder. We discuss such diverse role-playing topics as kids in role-playing, romantic storytelling, and good story design in every role-playing genre, from dark future sci-fi to high magic fantasy to gothic terror. In future episodes, we'll have interviews with gaming visionaries and cutting-edge role-players, segments on good storytelling practice, and on somewhat controversial gaming topics such as sex, religion, and excessive violence in role-playing games. Join me, Sam Chupp, the co-creator of Wraith the Oblivion and Changeling the Dreaming, in a never-ending quest for the holy grail of gaming. Your journey with me starts on the web at bearsgrove.blogspot.com. Meet you at the Bears Grove! Sam's a personal friend of mine, and his podcast is excellent for deep analysis of children in role-playing and some other social aspects that aren't often considered. It'll be linked from our website, escapepod.info. If you have a podcast that you think might be suited to our audience, drop me a line and point me at your promo. I can't guarantee when we'll play what, but we'll try to hit everything that makes sense for us to play eventually. Conversely, if you don't like hearing promos week after week, send us a book review instead. Call us with those at 206-666-EPOD. We'll usually just do one or the other, so the power is in your hands. You also have the power to support us with word of mouth or your donations. Escape Pod pays its authors for the rights to their stories, and you can help us cover our costs by clicking on the PayPal link at escapepod.info. We also release under Creative Commons, all of the rights reserved, etc., etc. Our featured donor this week is Paul, from the website thither.biz. Paul's donated to us multiple times, and his business is to provide top-flight internet and IT services to nonprofits. That's an awesome mission, and one that, for obvious reasons, Escape Pod fully endorses. 
But the real reason Paul's our featured donor this week is this haiku he sent us. Sitting with coffee, listening to burning bush, I splutter, guffaw. Enough said there. Thanks, Paul. Our music comes to us from Daikaiju, fierce creatures with a sonic attack so powerful we can only reproduce part of it here. For the complete experience, tread carefully to daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. If you meet the Buddha in the road, see if he's being played this time by Keanu Reeves. Then kill him. Until next week, have fun. <laughs>